to when you ask people on the street? It's a question, though, that I think a lot of people wrestle with, especially in light of many of the big questions that we're wrestling with throughout this series. And last week, we began with this big question, does life have a purpose? And as we really considered that, as we thought about it, what Pastor Mark highlighted is he said, you know, if there is no God, then no, life doesn't have a purpose. It doesn't really matter. But, but if there is a God, then yes, yes, it does. It means that not only does the life have a purpose, but your life has a purpose, that your life matters. And so it's very natural that upon dealing with that question, you know, does life have a purpose? Well, it really is, is more of a, the more fundamental question is, well, is there a God or not? Because if there is no God, then the answer to does life have a purpose becomes pretty darn easy. But if there is a God, then the question becomes, well, how do we know? What is God like? How does that then shape our our lives and the decisions that we make? And it's really to that question that I want us to turn this morning. I want us to consider this question, is there a God? To consider, is there evidence uh, for his existence? And if there is, uh, what does that evidence tell us? But I think it's only right that before we actually dive into the message, that we take a moment to just uh, allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds uh, for the message that he has for us this morning, and to take stock of the question. And so if you would, uh, would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this morning, this place where we can come and bring our questions. Lord, especially this big question, your word says that the heavens declare your glory, and yet so many of us struggle. We wonder, how can we know it's true? And so, Lord, this morning we ask that you would reveal yourselves to us, that you, Holy Spirit, would give us uh, open ears to hear, open minds to understand, open hearts to receive the message that you have. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, as a teenager, this question, is there a God for me, was pretty easy. Uh, I was not uh, raised going to church. Um, we didn't really talk about spiritual things very often as a family. And uh, so I, I grew up with kind of a, a preconceived notion of how best to answer this question. It was, a, it was an understanding of this question. It really came to me through being raised in the public school system. You know, people would, would say there's a God. And I'd say, really? If, if there's a God, then what evidence has he presented? I mean, everything that I had been taught in school from from science to history was that this idea uh, about God um, might be a, a quaint one, a novel one that some people would hold, but it's not one that really had any evidence. That if you looked at science, what science shows us about our biology is that we evolved from some sort of primordial soup. That what it shows us about astronomy is that everything uh, came together by random uh, coincidence over long periods of time. Really not a whole lot of evidence there. And and if you looked at history, you know, Christianity and the Bible is really a myth. You you really can't point to anything, any kind of historical fact that would prove the existence of God or even the, the reliability of what we find in Scripture. That's what I believed growing up. Those were the convictions that I came to. Which is why I was grateful that as a teenager... I had people in my life who started to to kind of push back a little bit. That when I would make uh, claims that there was no evidence, they would say, really, are you so sure? Are you positive? And they started to to point to me, uh, point me to some, some, actually some very, very good evidence 
Evidence that, that answers the question, is there a God in the affirmative? And says, yes, there is a God. And actually, based on the evidence, we can know quite a good deal about him. And so this morning, I want to go on a journey with you. I want to go on a journey in which we look at the reasonable evidence. I'm going to share with you some of, the, some of the bits of evidence that were pivotal for me, and I hope that they're actually beneficial to you as you wrestle with this question. But here's what I also want to say I'm not going to do. I'm not going to try to argue you into faith. Okay, because number one, I think that's impossible. I have never seen anyone come to faith simply because they were argued into it. So my commitment is I'm not going to do that, okay? Um, but what I am going to do is I want to lay out a couple of bits of evidence. Things that when you stop and you really think about them seem to answer the question, is there a God in the affirmative? And these are bits of evidence that some of them come from Christians, but some of them also surprisingly come from those who would consider themselves agnostics or skeptics. And so I want to walk through specifically five bits of evidence for you this morning. First evidence that I want to point to is what I call the moral evidence. The moral evidence uh, highlights the fact that within the human heart, that within whether you, uh, regardless of what culture you go to or what you visit, there seems to be a moral impulse within human beings. A moral impulse that the, says that there are certain things that are right and good and certain things that are wicked and bad and should be avoided. And this argument, this, this bit of evidence was first made to me when uh, someone handed me the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said, I want you to think for a second about the arguments that you hear people having. He says that everyone has heard people quarreling. Sometimes those arguments are funny and humorous. Sometimes they're quite disturbing and hard to listen to. But I believe that we can learn something very important from listening to the kinds of things that people say when they quarrel. Specifically, they'll say things like, excuse me, I was sitting there first. Or, hey, you know, you're not allowed to do that. You should treat other people the way you want to be treated. Or, excuse me, I, I shared with you, I, I do believe it would be reasonable to ask you to share with me. He says, they use these arguments, and, and what I find interest me, uh, interesting about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him, He's appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other person to know about. He's not simply saying, I don't like it when you do that. He's saying, what you're doing is wrong. That everybody seems to understand this. Now, I'll be honest. When I first heard this argument, I didn't buy it. I said, that's, that's C.S. Lewis's perspective. I mean, doesn't anthropology show us that, that morals are culturally determined? But then the problem uh, came up when I actually studied anthropology. See, I went off to the, to the university and I got a degree in uh, religious studies with a focus in Islamic studies. But one of the great things about getting a liberal arts degree is that you have to like take classes in a lot of other disciplines. And so I had to take several classes in anthropology and in ethnography. And one of the things that I found as I studied anthropology and ethnography is that this moral impulse exists regardless of what culture you visit. You see, anthropologists used to believe that all morals were culturally determined. And they would cite as their evidence cultures that had different rules and, and approaches to things like warfare or lying or bribery or things like that. They would, you know, visit a culture where this people group is always at war with the tribes around them. And they would say, well, see, doesn't that show that the idea of peace and nonviolence and stuff is simply culturally determined? Because here's, here's a society that obviously is much more okay with violence than the rest of us. 
Or they would go to other cultures where bribing and deception was seen as a way to get ahead. And they would say, see, doesn't this show that, that our ideas about lying and deception are really culturally relative? But then when the anthropologists would actually start asking people within that culture how they felt about those things, they learned something quite surprising. For example, when they went to one of these tribes that was constantly at war with its neighbors, they said, so what happens when another tribe comes against you and, and they defeat you in battle, they kill some of your elders, they take other people captive? How do you feel about that? And they say, well, that's, I feel terrible. That's horrible. They say, do you just feel terrible and horrible because they beat you at your own game, essentially? And they say, no, I feel terrible and horrible because killing people is wrong. And you shouldn't enslave others. Ethnographers will say, but, but you guys do that all the time. They say, like, we do it because we have to survive. That's a very, very different argument. They're saying, yeah, we do it, but we know it's wrong. We prefer that nobody does it to us. Likewise, when they went to societies where, where bribing was seen as a way to get economically ahead, then they started to ask people about bribes. So how do you feel when you have to pay a bribe to someone? They say, I hate it. It's terrible that we have to pay bribes to each other. Say, are you just upset because, you know, you've, you've gotten to bribe other people and now you're, you're the, the victim of a bribe? They say, no, because deception and lying and taking other people's money for unjust reasons is wrong. But I do it because everybody does it. You see, there's a moral impulse in the human heart that whether, regardless of what culture you go to, people know is there, that there's a certain standard of right and wrong, this concept of justice to which we all hold. And while we may try to numb it, while we may try to turn our backs to it, while we may try to craft rules to get around it, it stubbornly persists within the human heart. In fact, it's this moral impulse that has become the basis of societies and governments and rules of law down through the ages. Our own Declaration of Independence appeals to this moral impulse, right? It says, we hold these truths to be what? Self-evident. We hold these truths to be self-evident. We didn't say, we hold these truths to be the ones that we prefer to keep because we find them convenient. We didn't say, we, we hold these truths to be the ones that we know we can enforce by might and with our power and with our will. We said, no, we hold these truths to be self-evident to everybody. That all men are created equal. And endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. They didn't say when we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are the accidental coalescence of, you know, primordial chemicals over a long period of time. No, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and are endowed with their creator with, uh, by their creator with certain inalienable rights. It's an appeal to the moral impulse. An appeal that they believed cut across cultures and philosophical lines became the basis of, of us then founding our own government. Furthermore, it's this moral impulse that we appeal to in every great social justice movement in human history. We're about to celebrate one on Monday, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Dr. King dared to hold our nation accountable to our moral impulse. So that in the I Have a Dream speech, he cited the Declaration of Independence as the very basis for insisting on civil rights. Furthermore, this speech, which elementary age children are required not only to listen to, but even to memorize, regardless of what religious or philosophical background they come from, this speech is filled with references to the divine. 
It says, we continue to, to pursue this until justice comes down like mighty waters, till righteousness flows like an ever-flowing stream. He's quoting the Old Testament prophets. To claim that there is something called justice means that there is a divine judge. To call people to righteousness means that there is one who determines what is good and bad. And again, we may try to turn our back on it. We may try to numb ourselves to it. We may craft rules around it. But the moral evidence still stands that there is indeed a God who has written his law on our hearts. Something that the Bible itself affirmed. Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, people demonstrate that God's law is written on their hearts for their own conscience and their thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. And for me as a skeptic who actually cared about social justice, for me as a skeptic who dared to say that there is something called human rights, I realized I had to contend with this moral evidence. Because if there is no God, then there is no such thing called justice to which all human beings are subject. That the only thing that goes without a God is the rule of might makes right. We have no basis for criticizing tyrants when they seize control and oppress their fellow man. But in our heart of hearts, we all know our thoughts either accuse us or tell us we're doing right, that there is a moral law. And this moral evidence tells us something about God. It tells us that God is good, fair, and just. That he cares about things like justice and human rights. And it's because he exists. Because there is a moral law. That we can pursue things like justice. That we can pursue things like peace. That we can call out tyranny. And beat back wickedness. That was the first bit of evidence that I think really spoke to me as a person who was seeking the second piece of evidence is this. It's the ontological evidence. Now, that's a big word. And the only reason I honestly put it up there is because I really couldn't find a better word. Okay, what is ontology? Ontology is simply the science of being. What does it mean to be a human being? And the ontological evidence is simply this. What we find when we look at human beings, when they live their lives, is that we as human beings have these deep, insatiable desires for something bigger than us. There's nothing that you can account for in natural selection or evolutionary theory that makes human beings say, I want to find out what's at the bottom of the ocean. That compels human beings to look to the stars and launch themselves into the heavens. There's nothing that can account for the deepest longings of our heart that we're not just satisfied when our bellies are full, but we want things like significance and meaning and love and companionship. That there's something fundamental about being human which calls to us. And again, when uh, I was first presented with this evidence, and again, it came from C.S. Lewis kind of reading Mere Christianity. What he talks about is he says, every desire that we find in nature has the thing that satisfies it in reality. He says, so when a baby cries because it's hungry, it's because there is something called food which can satisfy it. That when we see a duckling upon hatching from its shell run towards water, it's because that duckling knows that there is a, something called water that it is designed to swim in and where it will find safety. And then he makes this, uh, then, then he says this, and he says, and if we find in ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that we are made for another world. That we as human beings have this desire within us to look to something deeper. 
something more real which will give us ourselves of our sense of of significance of identity of self-worth and of security now religious people have called this thing worship we say that we worship the things that we think are going to give us significance and security and identity but it's not just religious people who make this claim in fact, a well-known author, uh, David Foster Wallace, New York Times best-selling author, uh, was also an agnostic. He was very, very clear about that. Throughout his life, people asked him what he believed about the divine. He's like, I don't really know if anything is there. I don't know if God exists. I'm just not sure. I don't claim that he doesn't, but I, I just really don't know. And yet, when he was asked to give a commencement speech at Kenyon College to their liberal arts and sciences grads, he said something truly fascinating. This is what he said. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice that we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, whether it's Jesus or Allah or Yahweh or the uh, mother goddess, is that pretty much anything else that you worship is going to eat you alive. He goes on and says, what happens if you worship power? Well, then you will never have enough. You will never feel like you have enough. You will constantly live in fear, grasping at more and more power, thinking that it will make you feel safe. What happens if you worship beauty and and sexual allure? Well, then you'll never feel pretty. And as the ravages of time take their toll on your body, you will feel ever more ugly and hideous and wonder if you can ever be loved. He says, what if you worship your intelligence? Then you'll always feel dumb. Always feel like you have to justify yourself in the company of peers. Always afraid that you're going to be found out for the fraud that you are. He says, we all worship. It's actually, he says this in his speech, these are our default settings. There's something within us that desires to live for more. And he says, and that's the benefit of being religious, honestly. I think it's funny that he makes that case when he himself wasn't. But it's because he acknowledges that, there's, that, that we have a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy. And so the, as long as we're looking to the world to satisfy it, we will always come up short. We will always come up empty. And honestly, this realization is not a new one. Augustine said it back in the 4th century. He said, our hearts are restless, Lord, until they find our rest in thee. There is this cry in the human heart for more. I see us often direct that desire to things which can't satisfy. I see people trying to find their security and their significance and their self-worth in their job, in their intelligence, in their romantic relationships, in the acclaim of their peers, and always being disappointed. Walking around perpetually hungry, looking for the thing which can satisfy, and not realizing that that desire is there because there is one who can meet it. That just as hunger points us to the reality of food and thirst points us to the reality of water, so this hunger within the human heart points us to the one who alone can satisfy. In fact, Scripture says that this way God has set eternity in the human heart. It's from Ecclesiastes 3.11. See, what the ontological evidence says is that desire is there because there's one who can meet it. And what it tells us about him is that God is loving that he desires a relationship with us, a relationship in which he alone can satisfy the deepest needs of the human heart. There's also scientific evidence. See, this is the one that really stumped me as a young man. 
I would sit across the lunch table from some of my peers, people who went to church and said that they believed in a God, and I would laugh at them. They say, yeah, there's a God. He created everything. And I would just start laughing. I was like, did you guys not pay attention in honors biology? Look at, our, look at what science has proven. Science has proven that the entire universe is here by accident. That our galaxies were formed by random chaotic events taking place which coalesced into dirt clods, which we call planets. And furthermore, that, that life is only here by accident as well. That over billions of years, this primordial soup with electricity being fired through it eventually brought forth life. It's what scientists have shown. Read your science book. Until I had some really, really thoughtful scientists in my life say, you know, the scientific community is actually uh, no longer convinced that that might be the best explanation. And I started to read the stories of scientists who were not believers. Scientists who considered themselves atheists, but the more research they did, the more it pointed them to a different conclusion. One of these people was Robert Jastrow. Robert Jastrow was actually the first, uh, first chairman of NASA's Lunar Exploration Committee. He's the guy who actually helped us get to the moon. He also uh, went on to ho hold several other distinguished um, uh, seats within NASA. He went on to become a professor of uh, astronomy and of physics at some of the most noted universities in the United States. He himself has said, I'm an agnostic. I don't, I don't believe, I don't really know uh, what kind of a God there is, but this is what my science has led me to believe. Here's what he writes. This is actually not what he wrote. This is what he said in an interview. He was on record as saying, you know, astronomers now find that they've painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in this cosmos and on the earth. And they have found that all this happened as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover. That there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. Likewise, other physicists have said uh, similarly. Okay, Paul Davies uh, wrote this. He said, It is hard to resist the impression that the present structure of the universe, apparently so sensitive to minor alterations in numbers, has been rather carefully thought out. The seemingly miraculous concurrence of these numerical values must remain the most compelling evidence for cosmic design. And this isn't just true of astronomy, it goes right down to biochemistry and biology. People thought that over time, Darwin's theory of evolution would hold to be true. That the more we learned of the fossil record, the more we would see that we are really just descended from one common ancestor that one time crawled out of the primordial ooze. And that the more fossils we collected, the more we would start to see transitional species and, and development over time. And yet, the scientific community in the hundreds is starting to repudiate that very theory. That to date, 900 scientists have actually signed a scientific dissent against Darwinism. Furthermore, they're publishing peer-reviewed scholarly articles to support that claim. 
One of these guys is, uh, well, used to be the curator of the Field Museum at Chicago. His name is David Ropp, and he wrote a paper called Conflicts Between Darwin and Paleontology, in which he said the following, We are now about 120 years after Darwin, and the knowledge of the fossil record has been greatly expanded, yet we have even fewer examples of evolutionary transition than we had in Darwin's time. Likewise, Nobel Prize winner Sir Francis Crick, Nobel Prize winner for physiology, writes this, The origin of life appears to be almost a miracle. So many are the conditions which would have had to be satisfied to get it going. Now, ladies and gentlemen, when the scientific community starts using words like miracle, you know that something is going on in the sciences. That overwhelmingly, there have been atheist scientists who, on the basis of their own rigorous science, have come to a place of belief. Not necessarily a place of Christian belief, but a place of belief saying that there must be a God of some kind. There has to be some sort of intelligent designer. That that is what the science is bearing out. They're continually coming to the conclusion that the psalmist wrote so many thousands of years ago when he said, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. And what this evidence points us to is this, that God is both creative and powerful, carefully designing all of life according to a predetermined plan. Fourth bit of evidence. This one's going to be a little shorter because actually we're going to take two weeks on it. Okay, weeks five and six of the series are going to go into the historical evidence. But this was one of the things for me. I started to say, you know, there's no historical basis for, for Christianity. There's no historical for basis for the Bible. The Bible doesn't hold up under good historical scrutiny the way other ancient documents do. Until somebody started to show me that actually it does. And here's, a, here's just kind of a snapshot. When ancient historians look at our history of the ancient Greco-Roman world, they usually point to three works that they say, these are really good historical uh, accounts of what was going on in the ancient Greco-Roman world. There's Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War, there's Caesar's Gallic Wars, and there's Tacitus' histories and annals. And most historians will look at those and they'll say, these are pretty reliable accounts of what actually happened in ancient times written by ancient writers and authors. But here's the side-by-side -side comparison that I think is particularly interesting. Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War was written somewhere between 431 and 400 BC, but the oldest copy of it that we have was found in 900 AD. That's 1,300 years from the original to the copy that we have on hand. And there are about 73 ancient copies in existence. Now you take Caesar's Gaelic Wars, okay? That was from 58 to 50 BC was about when it was written. But the date of the oldest copy that we have is 825 AD. That was 875 years. And we have about 10 ancient copies of that. Tacitus' Histories and Annals was written sometime between 98 and 108 AD. But the oldest copy we have is from 850 AD. That's a gap of 750 years, and we only have two copies of it. But now take the entire New Testament. That's all four Gospels, all of the epistles, and the book of Revelation. was written between a period of 40 to 100 A.D. By the way, Jesus was, depending on how you're dating it, crucified at 30 to 33 A.D. So within 10 years of his death, we start to have biographies of his life. That the oldest copy that we have is dated to 350 A.D. And actually, some scholars have said we think we found even earlier ones than that. 
It's a gap of only 310 years between original writing to the oldest copy we have, and we have 14,000 ancient copies of the New Testament. The documentary evidence for Christianity is overwhelming when you fairly compare it to any other ancient text. Don't even get me started on the archaeological evidence. We'll, we'll go there later. The archaeological evidence continually verifies the historical narratives of the Bible, both Old and New Testament. In fact, up until recently, one of the biggest charges against the Old Testament was that uh, one of the great kings of Judah, the king Hezekiah, we found no archaeological evidence for, none. Until about two years ago when we started to find a bunch of coins from that period that have his name as king stamped on them. Not frauds. Dated to his time period. The more archaeology we've done, the more convinced we've become of the historical narratives of Scripture. And the reason that this stood out to me is because of how the Bible compares to every other religious myth that you find. The beginning of the Gospels are really particularly fascinating. I like to start to Luke's Gospel. This is what, how he begins his account of Jesus' life. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. Now, when you look at any other religious myth, they always begin kind of the same way. Once upon a time. Once at one time in a far-off land, Zeus came down. Once long, long ago in an ancient kingdom that no longer exists, there's a man named Arjuna and his charioteer Krishna. And Krishna revealed to Arjuna the truth of the divine. But when you get to the Bible's accounts, they start saying things like, no, I've actually investigated this. Here are the eyewitnesses. These things happened at this place during the reign of this king uh, at this time. Uh, some of the witnesses are named. They're so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. In fact, the Apostle Paul even says, hey, if none of this stuff happened, if, if, uh, if all this stuff that we're claiming didn't really happen, then you don't have to believe us. See, the Bible is written to say, no, this is history, and if you want to refute it, you can go and you can check the sources yourself. Over and over again, the Bible invites criticism. It invites you to explore because it bases everything it claims on historically verifiable fact. One of this points us to, the truth this points us to, is that God makes himself known in human history. He is not content to be elusive. He is, does not hold us at arm's length. He wants us to know him, and so he reveals himself in time and in space. Last bit of evidence. The reason I put it last is because it's the most personal, it's quite honestly the personal evidence. One of the greatest gifts that I've been given in life was this journey of having to look of having to explore, of having to consider the evidence myself. And the more and more I've looked at the evidence, the more and more I've become convinced that we have good reasons for believing that God exists. But more than that, since I have taken the journey of following him in my life, I have found that God does indeed speak to us in prayer. God does indeed reveal his purposes for our lives. God does indeed send us on a trajectory and a lifespan where people's lives truly are changed and transformed. But here's the thing. I'm not asking you to take it simply on my account. 
That if you believe simply at the end of a 25, maybe 28-minute message, I don't want you to take it on that. I want you to see this as an invitation to go on that journey yourself. I can't do your thinking for you. But what I can say is someone who's looked at the evidence is that there are good reasons to believe. In fact, I, I, I really love it when you start to put all the evidence together, what it reveals. It shows us that not only does God exist, God is good and just. He is powerful and creative. He is loving, and he wants to be known by you and by me. He desires that relationship with you. The question is, will you accept the invitation? I love how Blaise Pascal put it. He said, God has given evidence of himself which is sufficiently clear for those with an open mind and an open heart, but sufficiently vague so as not to compel those who do not wish to seek him. There's enough light for those to see who desire to see and enough obscurity for those who have a contrary disposition. Likewise, Scripture says it this way, the Lord says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. The evidence is there. The invitation is to come and take a look at it. But if you're saying, I don't believe there's a God because I don't think there's enough evidence, what I want to impress upon you this morning is that that is a flimsy excuse. And that when you do meet God face to face, and he asks you, why didn't you believe? The answer, you didn't provide enough evidence, is not going to hold up. Because the evidence increasingly is there. That the more and more you look at it, you find that we do indeed have reasons to believe. It's the reason the Apostle Paul wrote, uh, said in Acts 17, From one man God made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. He's marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. The invitation this morning is search. Explore further. Look at the evidence honestly. That's really what the Explore God series is all about. This is our invitation to you to come and take a closer look. That's the reason we're here as a church is we want to help you take a closer look. To see that we have reasons for faith because God's desire is to be known. That you would come to know him as he is. A God who, yes, is powerful and just, but a God who is also loving and present to you, who ultimately comes into this world that we might know him. That is the story of our faith. That's the story that the evidence continues to point to. It's a story that we invite you to explore further as we continue in this series. It's in the name of Jesus, the one who is indeed the word made flesh, that we say, Amen.